0: Good morning, it is good to be back with you this morning, well, I guess I'm here every week, but uh, it's good to be back in this capacity again, Uh, but it is good to have Pastor Mike back, if you had not had a chance to talk to him, make sure you do that, and make sure you ask him about his new method for premarital counseling. Uh, I'll I'll leave you in suspense so that you do ask him about that, because it is... uh, it is quite funny, but uh, quite effective, I think. So um, we are going to uh, continue or actually finish up the book of Obadiah this morning and allow him to rest from his travels and also to prepare for the talk this evening, uh, which he's, he's gotten to do this week. So um, we are going to finish the book of Obadiah. Um, so if you want to go ahead and open there a while. And if you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that we started this study. And so, to open this morning, uh, before we actually read the passage, uh, I want to do a quick review of what we looked at in the first 11 verses, in case you weren't here, but also as a review. Um, so, that's how we'll start this morning. So, if you remember, uh, the, the book of Obadiah answers three basic questions Who are the enemies of God? Who are the friends of God? And who is this God? And last week, we addressed the first of these three questions looking at the nation of Edom as the primary enemy of God in this book. We saw that God was sovereignly calling all the nations to judge this tiny nation of Edom. And there were two main reasons for this judgment. First, we saw that Edom had become very prideful, and that pride mainly manifested itself in sinful self-reliance, thinking that they needed nothing from anyone and that their fortified city would protect them even from the judgment of God himself. They relied on their own strength and their own wisdom, playing friends with Babylon in order to try to preserve themselves from attack from that mighty nation. And we saw that God promised to use the other nations to overthrow the cities of Edom, to bring them down from their lofty heights, and to leave their nation completely destroyed forever. He would use their own wisdom against them in causing their allies to turn against them. And secondly, we look that God was judging Edom for how they had treated God's people, the nation of Israel. God said that Edom should have protected Israel, their sibling nation, from attack. But instead, Edom chose to not only stand aloof while Israel was being ransacked, but then also to join in the spoiling. God again said that for their sin against Israel and against God, he would destroy Edom forever. And in these two ways, we were challenged to search our own hearts for ways in which we rely on ourselves, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own wealth, instead of trusting in the sovereign God. We were also challenged to always watch how we treat one another, how we talk to one another. And I pray that over the past week the Spirit began dissecting our hearts through the truth of the gospel as we always look to completely rely on our Savior and His work on the cross. And so as we begin this morning, let's read the book of Obadiah again from start to finish to review the whole context of what we'll look at. And we'll pray and then we'll get into our text this morning. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not only steal enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter." Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up in Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray. Gracious Father, this morning as we look into the rest of this book of Obadiah, we pray that your Spirit would guide our hearts and our minds, that you would teach us your truth. And that in teaching us, you would change our hearts to be conformed more into the image of Christ. We thank you for this time this morning that we have to spend together. We pray that in everything that we do and say, that you would be honored and glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we'll be attempting to answer the last two questions. Who are the friends of God? And who is this God? And I believe that our text takes us naturally through the course of these questions. So we'll start by expositing the text together, explaining how the progression of Obadiah that it goes through, and I see, think we'll see that the answers to those, those two questions naturally flow from the text. Although we might have to put two and two together a bit. So as we begin, I want to read verses 12 through 14 again, but I want to do it emphasizing certain words, so follow along as I read. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Did you notice the words I was emphasizing there? Or more importantly, did you notice the tense of the words that I emphasized there? All of those phrases are commands. Though we still are on the same theme that we left off from last week, of how Edom should treat Israel, we have moved from the past tense, Edom did something to Israel, to the present tense command, Edom should do something to or for Israel. It's a very interesting switch that Obadiah makes here. And I think this naturally begs the question, why? Why does he make that switch? Why is it that God goes from condemning Edom to giving them a command? Well, one answer could be that God is giving Edom a second chance to get it right. Another opportunity to turn their nation around and begin acting like Israel's brother by giving up their self-reliant pride and humbling themselves before God. This could seem to make sense, especially in light of the book that directly follows Obadiah in your Bibles, the book of Jonah. There, God gives Nineveh a second chance, an opportunity to repent and to worship him as the true God. However, I don't think that's exactly what's going on here for two reasons. First, unlike Jonah, God does not give a specific offer of repentance to Edom. In Jonah, the prophet went to the city declaring judgment if the city did not repent. In Obadiah, however, God simply declares eternal judgment without offering the opportunity for repentance. And I think as we delve deeper into the text, we'll see possibly why God did not make this offer with Edom. But secondly, I think we see from the context of these commands that that there is not an, uh, an offering of opportunity for repentance. The second option, and I think the correct one, for why God switches to commands is that he broadens the audience In this book, from dealing with Edom to dealing with all the nations. Notice verse 15 with me. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. All of a sudden, God goes from dealing only with judgment on Edom to judgment on all the nations. You may ask how we know that verse 15 gives the context for verses 12 through 14. And notice the first little word in verse 15. Four This denotes a connection between verse 15 and what follows before. You could also use the word because. Do this and this and this in verses 12 through 14. Because the day of the Lord is near for all nations. So in essence, God is calling all the nations to take heed to these commands, to the warnings in this book. And we'll get back to the significance of translating that word as because in a moment. But first, I want to do a brief overview of what the term the day of the Lord is. If we're going to understand this book accurately, we have to understand this term, the day of the Lord. And this phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs in 22 verses in the Bible. Only 22. And only five of those are in the New Testament. So... Of the 17 that occur in the Old Testament, all of them are in the prophets. And the first time we see it is in Isaiah chapter 13. Where we read this in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. I think this verse sets the tone nicely for what we see about this phrase in the Bible. Notice first, the expectation of its coming. The prophet spoke in terms of expectation of its coming, that it would soon be coming. Now, we should not necessarily see this in terms of a time frame, you know, because this prophecy was given over 2,500 years ago and still has not yet taken place. Instead, we should see this term in terms of what we call imminence. And a good biblical definition for imminence is this. Possible to happen at any moment. Imagine, if you will, I placed a cup of water right on the edge of the podium. Where it was half off the edge and half on the edge. As I stood here and preached and maybe even banged the podium a little bit. Everyone in the room might see that cup, that it is imminent to fall. It appears that it could happen at any time, though there is no guarantee that it will happen anytime soon. And I think that illustrates the point well. The day of the Lord could happen at any moment, though there is never a guarantee that it will happen soon. And so it is with the day of the Lord. It is imminent. It could happen at any time. And secondly, we see from the verse in Isaiah that the day of the Lord is one of God's wrath and judgment being carried out, especially against sin. And we'll see this theme continued throughout this discussion. Here's another reference, Jeremiah 46.10. The day, That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated. And drink its fill of blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Notice again a similar theme, one of judgment, one of wrath. This verse brings in the theme of vengeance against God's foes as well. And this is certainly something we have seen so far in Obadiah God carrying out his judgment on his enemies, or the enemies of his people. And in the two minor prophets right before Obadiah, Joel and Amos, there's an element of darkness as well when it talks about the day of the Lord. I believe both referring to physical darkness, but also to the darkness of fear that will fall upon the nations as the Lord returns. And here in Obadiah, we see something else added to the description of the day of the Lord. We see the idea of judgment for specific actions. Notice the rest of verse 15 with me. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is truly an interesting element. Noting that in the judgment of Christ, actions will be taken into account. And I think this verse brings us full circle back into why translating that first word in verse 15 as because is very helpful in thinking through the flow of this passage. In verses 12-14, through God is instructing the nations on how they are to act in relation to His people. The command is to treat Israel well, because in the day of the Lord, they will be judged for their actions. So here's where we've gotten so far. We see that actions are important, but also that actions must be driven by belief. This is why translating that first word in 15 as 4 is also helpful. We see that the actions of verse 12 through 14 must be driven by the belief in verse 15. That the day of the Lord is near, and that the Lord judges based on actions. Do you see how that works so nicely? Action driven by belief. If you do not believe in the day of the Lord... And all that it means. Why would you ever choose to act rightly. Towards God and his people. In fact. It would make very little sense to act in that way. If you don't believe what happens in verse 15. It might require sacrifice. To act that way. In verses 12 through 14. It might require humility. Of heart and attitude. And that would be very stupid. If there is no day of the Lord. But. If I do believe that God's wrath will be poured out on sin, as Isaiah says, then my, life, then my life has to reflect that. And this is true about everything we as Christians are. If we truly believe what we say we believe, our actions must be driven by that belief. That's why James, in his epistle, spends so much time talking about the interaction between faith and works. Because they're almost inseparable. For James, actions must be driven by belief. And for Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, all of the right actions that he talks about, and he presses so hard into his listeners, must stem from the belief in who he is and why he has come. So here in Obadiah, righteous actions must stem from a right belief on who God is and what the day of the Lord entails. But now we're left with a bit of a conundrum. Remember, we're answering the question, who are the friends of God? So, if God's friends are those whose actions are driven by their right beliefs in Him, how is it that Israel could ever be considered a friend of God? Throughout the entire Old Testament, the nation of Israel is characterized by unbelief, complaint, idolatry, And blatant outright sins. And yet God still considers them. His people. In fact. As the book of Obadiah is written. The nation of Israel is sitting in exile. Because of these very issues. And God is still judging one of the nations. That he used to carry out. This judgment on Israel. Do you see the tension we're sitting in? And If right actions are meant to characterize the people of God, how can Israel ever be considered the people of God? And yet they are. So is it then that actions are not the true dividing line between the friends of God and the enemies of God? I think this is the conclusion that we are left with. Uh, Let me read a section of Romans 9 that will help us shed some light on this dilemma. And you can turn there, if you'd like, to Romans chapter 9, and I'll start reading in verse 10. Romans 9, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that god's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of his call she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written jacob i loved but esau i hated what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part by no means for he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and i will have compassion On whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Here, Paul gives us a little bit of perspective on what's going on in the book of Obadiah, a little behind the scenes peek, if you will. And I should say that this should give us a little perspective on reading the entire Old Testament, in fact, the entire Bible. Right after the section we just read, Paul talks about Pharaoh as well, giving perspective on what is happening in Exodus. But notice with me what Paul says about Jacob and Esau. He says that before the boys were even conceived, and on no account of anything good or bad that either of them would ever do, God, for the sole purpose of the continuance of his election plan, chose Jacob And not Esau. Though Esau was the older brother. The stronger brother. The one who could go out and hunt and fish. The one with red hair. (laughs) Though that was Esau. God chose Jacob. The trickster. To continue his promise through. God's chosen people would continue through the seed of Jacob. And not the seed of Esau. And notice verse 16 in Romans 9 again with me. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We don't have sufficient time this morning to delve into the deep theological discussion on the election purposes of God. But what we must understand from what Paul is saying is that our right standing before God, our placement in the category of being a friend of God, has absolutely nothing to do with our own work or effort, but with the sovereign election purposes of God. Now, I I did not say that there is no burden on our part, for Scripture also makes it clear that condemnation is one's own responsibility, and faith goes along with that. And we don't have time to delve into how all this works out, nor could we ever know anything and everything that there is to know about it. But I do think it is good for us to wrestle in our own minds this morning with sovereign election. The sovereign grace of God. Scripture does not shy away from this topic. Ephesians 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice here again, God's sovereign election purposes. There is no choosing on our behalf. There, sorry, there is choosing. There is choosing before the foundation of the world, the same concept we saw in Romans with Jacob being chosen before conception. Notice again what Paul says in the last phrase of verse 4 of Ephesians, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So here in Ephesians, Paul touches on the same issue that we see in Obadiah, that our standing before God, our placement in Christ, is a product of his choosing, and it must have an outcome in right actions. Or in other words, our right actions, being holy and blameless, are a product of our standing in Christ. And before we look at the benefits of being a friend of God, we have to ask what this understanding of God's choice should should cause within us. How does this apply to us? First, and possibly most importantly, it should humble us. We can take no credit for anything in and of ourselves, for what we are in Christ is a work of God. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God often chooses the weak and lowly things of the world. So if we are chosen by God, we are probably weak and lowly. How humbling is that to our hearts? And God says this in Isaiah 66. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God's friends, or in this context, the ones to whom God looks, are those who are humble in heart because they understand why they are who they are before God. Secondly, God's sovereign grace should drive us to proper worship because of our humbled hearts. John Piper famously writes this in his book entitled Desiring God. God is most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in him. God being properly glorified. Or properly worshipped. Happens greatest. When we are humbled enough. To find all of our satisfaction in him. Completely devoid of any self-reliance. The truest act of worship. Notice this builds on what we talked about last week. The fact that God judges Edom. For their self-reliance. God loathes. Self-reliance, and thus, complete dependency on him is a true act of worship. And finally, God's sovereign grace should drive our right actions, the very thing that Obadiah and Ephesians are getting at. Every day we make choices that must be defined by our beliefs. Our aim is to every day be more and more blameless in our thoughts, words, and actions, being dependent on the Holy Spirit to work the change. So here is where we are. For the friends of God, actions are always driven by right belief. But being a friend of God is completely dependent upon the sovereign choice of God. Remember, God chose Jacob as his people and not Esau. And we have seen what this should mean in our lives. So what are the blessings of being a friend of God in Obadiah? Well, first, in Obadiah verses 15 through 17... We see that for God's friends, there is mercy and not judgment. In verses 15 and 16, God says that for his enemies, vengeance will be carried out. Their actions will bring wrath. But for God's people, there will be an escape in verse 17. Mount Zion will be a place of refuge for the people of God, delivering them from the wrath being poured out in the day of the Lord. There is refuge, but there is also holiness. God's very presence is there, and it will be holy as he is holy. So for his people, there is mercy. Secondly, in verse 18, we see that a blessing of being one of God's people is triumph over enemies. Notice how Israel is described in this verse, a fire and a flame. He uses the reference to Joseph here to to show that he is in fact talking about all of the 12 tribes of Israel, and not just the southern kingdom. All of Israel will experience this blessing. And they are described as being a fire and a flame. And what will they do as that fire? Well, they will burn and consume their enemies, specifically Edom here in verse 18. We can't read this and think that God will give us immediate victory over whatever unjust enemy we are facing in our lives. Maybe that unfair boss or that unfair employer, or even the enemy of sickness or sorrow. God never promises immediate deliverance and victory over our enemies here and now. But he does promise in the end, when we all stand before the judgment throne of God, we will have victory over those things. And oh, how great a comfort is that. Third benefit, in verses 17b and verses 19 and 20, we see that a blessing of being a friend of God is an inheritance. This is another huge theological, biblical idea that we could spend an entire sermon series on. What we will say is that God promised to Abraham a huge territory that his offspring will possess as their nation. Israel never fully possessed that area under the reigns of David or Solomon. And so God promises again to Israel here that they will, in fact, receive the promised inheritance. Speaking specifically about the land that he promised to them. Though the regions and areas listed here do not completely cover the total territory promised to Abraham back in Genesis, I do believe that the reader of Obadiah is meant to recall those promises when reading this passage and understand that God again is reassuring Israel that he will give them the land he promised to their forefathers. Notice that in verse 20, God specifically mentions the fact that they're exiles. There is an encouragement here that though they are not even currently dwelling in the land of Israel, God will bring them back to their land and one day give them the entirety of the land that he promised. Again, what an encouragement to the people of God. Though they are exiles in a foreign land, and we, as New Testament believers, are aliens on this earth, we still trust in the promises God makes to his people, that he will give them an inheritance. So, we have answered our second question, who are the friends of God? And we have seen that there is a calling that comes with being God's people, but that there are abundant blessings that comes with being God's people as well. Now, let us ponder the third question. Who is God? Well, there are some things that we have already seen in this book. We have seen that He is sovereign, both in directing the course of nations and also in choosing a people for Himself. We have seen that He is merciful. We have seen that He is also just and will pour out His wrath on His enemies. And we have just seen that He is faithful to the promises He has made to His people. I'll point out, that these character traits are exactly how God reveals himself and his character to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Pivotal verses in the Old Testament in one of my favorite passages. In those verses, God defines himself as the completely self-sufficient one, sovereign in his works because he is God. He also says that he is a God who is merciful and gracious. Two characteristics that we have seen here in Obadiah and abounding in covenant faithfulness, always being true to his promises. But in verse 7, he also reminds them that he's completely just as well, never acquitting the guilty. And so Obadiah very much follows the theme of the rest of Scripture and showing God in those ways. But I think most importantly, and I think the, the theme of the entire book of Obadiah and probably the entire Bible is that of that, as of that matter, we see God as king. Look at verse 21 with me again. Saviors shall go up on Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This verse ends the book in the same way that it started, that God is the sovereign ruler over all the earth. I say this is the theme of the entire Bible because I think we see it right at the beginning in Genesis when we see that the very image of God in man is one of rulership and dominion. And we see it at the very end of the Bible in Revelation where Christ establishes his kingdom after his judgment is complete. And I think that the reader of Obadiah is meant to remember here God's purpose in choosing the nation of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a nation that would actually serve to bring the rest of the world under the rule of the Messiah, Christ. This was how he described his purpose, their purpose, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. And yet we know they failed in that purpose, just as we, the church, fail in that purpose each and every day. But notice again the encouragement in these words. There is no equivocation in this statement. The kingdom will be the Lord's. God will establish his reign with merely the word from his mouth, as we see in Revelation. God is accomplishing his purposes in the world. Yes, choosing to use his people to do that, but also even directing the course of entire nations, according to his sovereign purpose as well. This should again drive us to more humility before him, better worship of him, greater action for him. And there is one final point I'd like to make as we close our time in Obadiah this morning. I think we'd be missing part of the beauty of this book if we don't see how verse 21 plays out through the life of Christ as well. There are two central figures in the life of Christ that we know also descended from Esau. And they are Herod the Great, the king during the birth of Christ, and Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, and the king of Israel during the death of Christ. We know that these two men were Edomians, or Edomites. We know that the first time Christ ascended a hill in Jerusalem, it was in fact Herod a son of Esau, who thought he was delivering Christ over to death, ending his reign. Seemingly, there was no salvation, and Edom again had gained a victory. But we know that Herod's judgment was not final, for we know that the victory of Christ began on that very cross that Herod condemned Christ to and is finally consummated in the return of Christ to Mount Zion fulfilling every promise made in this short book by judging Edom and establishing his own kingdom, one that encompasses the whole earth and at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the one and only king. You could call it irony in the way the story played out in Christ, but I think as believers in Christ, we are ultimately meant to be reminded of the cross through which we have our redemption, And the final kingdom through which we have our salvation. Let's close in prayer. Remembering all of these things. And rejoicing in our great savior who is the king. Our father this morning. We thank you for this short book of Obadiah. We thank you for the truth that it contains. Father though it's written to a a heathen nation. 2,500 years ago. We know that you are still using it, using your truth to change our hearts this morning. Father, we give you honor and glory that you are the king, that you are through your church, through your plan and your purposes, you are bringing the world to yourself, that through the work of Christ on the cross, you are reconciling sinful people to yourself. We give you thanks and praise for that this morning. And and we ask that as we ponder and meditate on that, that your spirit would apply it to our hearts and that we would go forth from here better servants of Christ, that our desire would be that our actions flow forth from what we believe. That when we believe in the sacrifice of Christ, that he will one day rule this whole world, that each and every day our actions would be defined by that and not sinful self-reliance on ourselves. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name.